Welcome to Nightlife, the podcast. On Nightlife, I want to introduce you to someone who's been working diligently to restore a patch of rainforest in Queensland's Atherton Tablelands for the past 20 years. The property's called Thiaki. It's close to but not within the boundaries of the World Heritage listed wet tropics. Now, Penny Van Oosterzee, who is also an adjunct professor at James Cook University, her husband and a team of researchers have been trialling different ways of restoring rainforest. It's a job that involves, well, starting pretty well from scratch on a lot of the property because this part of the world was logged to within an inch of its life from the time that white settlers arrived in the area. Uh, Penny's written a fascinating book called Cloudland. It's part geological history, partly a history of white settlement and Aboriginal dispossession in the area. And it's also a love song to the flora and fauna, some of it very, very ancient that's at present on her property. Uh, Penny joins me now. Hi, Penny. Welcome to Nightlife. Thank you. Now, I, I know obviously it's nighttime, so when we look out, you'll see darkness, maybe some stars. But if we were looking out during the day, what, what would you see on your property? Can you paint us a picture? Sure. Yeah, the property's quite steep. So you look down from the house, which is on a ridge, you look down two valleys, one to the left and one to the right. The one to the left it was completely cleared when we first moved in here and the one to the right is completely vegetated. So we bought a scrap of cloud forest uh, of 180 hectares, of which 50 hectares is this precipitous paddock. Uh, and we looked at it and went, what the hell can you do with that? I mean, cows, if you adjusted, you'd make $5,000 a year tops. So um, while it was really hard to clear the rainforest here because it was massive and, and the bulldozers and people just looked like little toys on the bottom, it's harder. How the hell do you bring it back? Did you buy the property with a view to restoring it or was it something that you decided to do once you'd bought the property? We were a bit, I think it was something to do once we bought the property, actually. We'd spent, I spent a fair bit of time in the Northern Territory and ended up in Darwin. And the Darwin, I just got tired of being an environmental consultant and a, a development facilitator, I suppose, and also the temperature in Darwin. I mean, there's no climate analogue for it. At the moment, when we were there, it was 33 degrees and 90% humidity was was the maximum. But now you're getting 37 and 38 even, and that's becoming a little bit unbearable. So I started casting around for where to go, and this place came up. I mean, Darwin, Cairns. I mean, it is two hours out of Cairns, and you might think, well, that's hilarious because you've just gone to the same climate. But it's actually quite different because we're a 1,000 metres up, and that means we're ten about 10 degrees every day cooler than Cairns. So that's pretty much why we ended up here. And we looked at the property and then that's when we said, what can we do? We thought we did just simply didn't have the finances to do nothing. So both of us being ecologists, we put together a team, threw in a little bit of our own money and won an Australian Research Council grant to look at restoration uh, to make it cost effective because the locals here have a way of restoring that's really you plant multitudes of seedlings and you're asking for an instant canopy and that costs $60,000 a hectare. And if you've got tiny scraps of government money, it's just not going to cut it. And and everywhere in Australia where the costs are down to even $2,000 a hectare, they're going to 
get those uh, those monies. So we started looking at how you could restore uh, a paddock to a rainforest cost-effectively but with maximum biodiversity benefits. And that's what we started into and put the trees in in 2011. How much progress have you made? Well, 2011 was when we put the trees in. I think the, the thing about that date was that it was the week that Cyclone Yassi was building out in the Coral Sea. So the very date that we decided when the soils were wet enough and it was going to be a goer, when we had teams of scientists and a team of crack planters, was the week building up to Cyclone Yassi. So we put in 30,000 trees and the last day, you know, what, what happens to cyclones is they suck the weather away as they're building in the sea. And then this massive cyclone came over just, a, you know, a few days after we put in the last seedling. Um, and what had happened was that one of our techniques was not to spray out entire slopes of grass, but to spray in strips so that you actually keep the soil biome um, and you actually save money. So we put the trees along lines and when the cyclone came over, it actually blew the grass, which protected the seedlings. It was quite ironic because we were sitting there with a wind gauge sticking our hand out of, over the veranda and thinking we've lost the whole project. Uh, 250 kilometres per hour, the wind gauge stopped. and uh, But the next morning when we got up and we went, hell, look at this, all the, all the seedlings were there. So it was actually uh, very ironic uh, and very exciting. So it's now 10 years later and we've got uh, a vegetated 50 hectares um, with some patches because we left some patches there to see whether the forest would come back by itself. Rainforest, as we know, though, it you know, has an understory and a canopy. How far have you progressed towards a canopy or is that something that is going to take decades and decades? It's looking good. We flew the place with a drone only a couple of weeks ago to have a look at exactly that question. And many of the uh, treatments that we call it uh, have have worked. So whether you put a tree, whether you put spacing three meters apart or one one meter apart, they're all closing up into a closed canopy. So it's it's looking really good. And so we've we've published some papers that allow you to say, okay, you can put your, you can space your your trees further apart. You can put less herbicide in, um, and uh, you will get a forest for well, we can do it for five to eight thousand dollars a hectare, which is um, then makes it viable to be able to carbon trade um, and run cattle perhaps on the flats. We've got a few cattle running around on the flats as well. Penny Van Oosterzee is my guest on Nightlife. Her book is called Cloudland. It's all about the restoration of this uh, patch of the Atherton Tablelands called Thiaki. Uh, and it's also this, I've, I was fascinated because you basically trace the entire <laughs> geological history of the world quite briefly as to how it pertains to, to Thiaki. But you talk about some of the animals and plants there, the, the bits that the, you were, in, were intact when you, you bought the place, that have some incredibly ancient history and ancient ancestors. Um, can you give us an example of some of the species on the plants today that have this kind of ancient history? The thing with the wet tropics, which is why it's a World Heritage Area, there's really no place on earth like it. And the reason is that after the Chicxulub asteroid hit the planet and caused, you know, nearly wiped out life on earth, you had what was left was the Gondwanan elements of plants. And Australia was in, this, in the South Pole at the time. 
and evolution happens quickly. Normally it happens quickly after extinction events. In our extinction event, it's going to be a bit different because we're wiping everything out. But in other extinction events, there are refuges and the rainforest quickly evolved and then Australia drifted off to the north towards uh, towards Southeast Asia. And, and what happened was as, as Australia drifted to the north, the rainforest moved with its in the you know trying to track its cool uh, climate and in australia that's very hard to do and so it in, ends up on the tips of mountains which is why the wet tropics are so unusual and that's why the rainforest is there is quite ancient it has these gondwanan elements so as it, as uh, animals and plants are evolving they move those that uh, remain from that gondwanan time are drifting up the mountains so what we have is most of the plant species here, 50% or more, are endemic and ancient. They they actually have evolution going back to that time. And we have this uh, weird, I suppose, um, suite of animals. We have kangaroos that climb trees, so tree kangaroos that we often see, and um, a suite of ringtail possums, black and white ones, green ones, um, and red ones, and, uh, and also um, birds that are also hark back to this ancient time, like cassowaries. Yeah, because, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, one of the things I was really interested in that I hadn't quite um, tweaked was you talked about the extinction events, but basically saying when something like that happened, of course, that was that big uh, asteroid which basically wiped out the, the dinosaurs, that you lost so many plants, so many animals that were, were literally never to return. So it's those survivors that, that have eked through. And as you're saying, they're, they're some of the, you know, you've got the descendants of some of those survivors on your property there. Uh, well, the world uh, at the moment is, is, is a world of survivors which have evolved into the incredibly rich biodiversity that we're now rapidly chipping away at. I mean, if you're going to compare extinction events, I mean, we're doing better than the best of them. Uh, because we're doing it rapidly and it's being cleared. And that was why I wanted to write the book, was to show that what was happening here was a little reflection of what's going on globally. But, yeah, we do have these incredibly old plants. One of them uh, that creeps along the back veranda here is one of the oldest flowering plants in the world. And it's so old that it doesn't scent like other roses or things like that. It actually smells like a dog fart, really bad. And uh, that's because it evolved before um, the insects that would pollinate it and, and it, rely, it relied on flies and things like that. So which, which plant's that? Uh, it's called Ostrobalia uh, and it's a vine and it's, it's a single species of its family. And not only does it have this uh, terrible smelling scent, but it also has stems that just snap off at joints and those snapped off joints will quickly form another plant and that is because it's an adaptation to dinosaurs and dinosaurs didn't appreciate flowers. <laughs> uh, Penny Van Ostersee is my guest. Now I want to, to Penny also veer off and just talk to her a moment about, now I'm not sure how if I'm pronouncing this correctly, like Glossopteris and how it uh, links. Yeah, Glossopteris. Glossopteris and how it links India, Australia and Antarctica in geological history. Just tell us a bit about this. So what I tried to do was to write the story from the point of view of the rainforest. So what events were really important to it? And so I, I tracked, um, and weaving in and out with restoration and other stories, I tracked uh, scenes of what the Aki might have looked like in the past. And one of one at one time... Um, 
it would have been covered with this tree called glossopterus. It would have been as as common as eucalypts or acacias. And the interesting thing about glossopterus was that it was found in Antarctica as a fossil and uh, it enabled and also found in India. And it was that find that allowed the whole idea of plate tectonics that the Earth, the Earth's uh, continents drift around the globe and join up and then split up to to actually come to life. So Thiaki at that time would have been covered with a completely different forest um, and then another extinction event wiped that one out and then another type of forest came. So there were five major extinction events of which Thiaki was subjected to to four, so, including ours, of course. I mean, we're, we're, caught, we're caught in the last one. Now, uh, from Glossopterus, what's their link to It's called the, the cycad plant, which I think you do have these on, on Thiaki too, don't you? Glossopterus and cycads evolved at the, much the same time. Cycads are one of the oldest plants in the world. And the thing with cycads is if you, if you eat them, if you eat the wrong part of them, then you get a fit of purging and sickness and you can die which is what the early um the early explorers discovered so the rainforest peoples of course knew how to detoxify cycads so they it was a it's it's a very complex process that you need to bring the elements of earth and water and mythology into play it takes days and um it's actually not the nut that is eaten but the 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 nice fruit around it so what they were doing aboriginal people were doing was was using that and then when Europeans first came they walked into Aboriginal camps and saw the discarded poisonous nut and started eating that um, and feeding it to their pigs which died on, on, on their ships. So the thing with those is that they are edible but they take a lot of processing to, to eat. So they've come right through time to, to get to this point where people can eat them if they process them. But in the past, of course, um, what must have happened was the animals that evolved with the cycad had these giant stomachs and can just gulp down the cycads without chewing. So it must have just come out the other end uh, and didn't kill them. Otherwise, we might not have had dinosaurs. Well, that's right. You talk about the discovery of a, a dinosaur fossil, I guess, which basically everyone could see that its last meal was this uh, or found that the cycad in, in its stomach, basically. Yeah, uh, so that what that did uh, was the dinosaurs, of course, came after the evolution of the animals that started eating the cycads. And, and what it allowed, it allowed scientists to see was this is what animals did. They just gulped down masses of these cycads and they just sat, that sat in their stomach um, and then just completely went through. The seeds were not digested and that's, um, that's why they were able to eat the fruit on the outside what it's called, an arrow. Penny Van Osterze is my guest here on Nightlife. She's the author of Cloudland. She's telling us about this patch of the Atherton Tablelands in Queensland called Thiaki. Now, you write really compellingly about the idea of country as understood by Australia's uh, Indigenous people with the country itself being sentient. Um, can you just explain that a bit more for us? When people came to Australia, it was, you know, 65,000 years ago, they became embedded in the landscape. To such, I mean, you, you just think of the amount of time. Um, it was a strange country, so they filtered through the landscape. But when they when they landed at a place, they had the propensity, I suppose, to stay there. So the genomics of many Aboriginal people show that they stayed in one place for fifty thousand years. So that sort of fidelity is unknown um, 
anywhere else. And what that meant was the way that they could live off the land there was to actually be become part of the land. So they not separated. They didn't see themselves as I am a human and you're a plant. They were the plants and the humans and the animals all lived the same way together, watching each other, learning from each other, understanding each other and managing each other, like the, the, the environment managed people just the same so that, so that everybody and when I say everybody, I mean plants and animals, could move through time and climate together. Um, and so what, what I call them is future makers. They made the environment, they made niches, they looked after the place and they they pretty much made Australia. Now, uh, you're right, it, it's a shocking story you tell and I was stunned when I read the detail and that because the second part of your, your book really tells the history of logging in this part of the world, which was firstly driven by the race to chop down red cedar trees. Can you just, um, Penny, give us the broad brushstrokes of how logging progressed once the Atherton Tablelands was opened up to white settlers and loggers? So the Atherton Tableland uh, really wasn't discovered by by Europeans, I mean, you know, invaded by Europeans until the 1870s and 1880s. Part of the coast was only looked at in the the late 1870s. And um, a guy called Dalrymple said that there was massive cedars here. And, of course, the cedars had been logged out to the south around Sydney, uh, you know, all the way up the coast. The last place that they were in any numbers was the Atherton Tablelands. And it became a cedar rush, you know, like a gold rush. And um, people just came, well, loggers just came here to rush the forest. And what they did was just start chopping it down. But the crazy thing was there was no railway, there was no nothing to allow transport to the coast. So the logs lay in the forest rotting. It was impossible to actually bring them down to the coast. They were so big that when the railway was built up, from Cairns and some logs began to find their way down to, to the railway that you had to actually blow it with dynamite to get it through the tunnels. But mostly the very first part of the logging, when Siaki was just chopped down, most of those logs were just left to rot. You talk, though, about some of the loggers trying to float the cedar down the river and then it reached the Barren Falls, which is obviously a waterfall. What would happen then? Oh, they just... Um, <laughs> they just uh, broke to smithereens. So the thing, uh, it's hard to actually understand the mentality of people, uh, uh, of Europeans at that time. Um, it was just get rich quick. There was no concern for the environment at all. And, in fact, what shocked me, um, there were many things that shocked me, but one of the biggest things to shock me was that you had these people, rainforest people, who knew the country intimately. My God, you you would just die to have that sort of knowledge now. Um, And no one took any notice of them. They just wanted them gone. Uh, And, you know, the the horrific stories of how that happened is also in the book. But the loggers logged um, just crazily. It was just a frenzy of logging. And if you couldn't get it down the hill, well, then you chucked it in a river and saw whether that river would float it into the sea so it was it was just I mean it's it's just absolutely hard to imagine the mentality of that but it was logged and then it was cleared and it was cleared for another really pernicious ideology I call it of closer settlement where the idea was to 
to have these nice little smiling homesteads of, you know, rosy-cheeked children and plump wives and everybody would be happy. And, of course, that's not the way the place works. So it was cleared for something that was never going to work. And, in fact, that ideology caused more despair to black and white uh, than anything else because it was cleared for nothing. What happened to the, um, I mean, you, you do document some of the story, but I can imagine, you know, when you, you talked earlier about this, you know, you are the land, the land is you. For the local people watching all of that come down, do, do you get a sense of what that must have felt like? Destruction of the Aboriginal culture and the people themselves was pretty thorough. Um, and so people... People lost their culture to to some degree in many of their stories. So some of that, much of that really hasn't come down. Um, So Aboriginal people, you know, were told to go, told where to work, when to marry, and if you didn't behave, then you were sent off to Palm Island. So that's the sort of thing that people remember now. That there is a strong movement among the rainforest peoples where pockets of culture have survived uh, and where people are searching um, for, for their connection to land and they are now rebuilding those connections. It's not well known, but those connections are building, building back. You see, the thing is that if you had such a connection with people, I mean, it was cellular. So that even, so that even though it was, Every attempt was made to destroy it. It still remains, and and that's how Aboriginal people are are building once again uh, into a network that's going to be able to manage the forest that's left. So you're not alone. There are a number of other landholders in the area who are also looking at at reforestation. How successful have have they been in kind of, I guess, building a pathway linking rainforest with rainforest? The success is coming, uh, particularly now with with the new carbon policy so much there's not very much the government has never really funded it so we we really must look to uh, private enterprise funding it through the carbon market so it's coming with that but it has to be made cost effective so that is why we got involved the the um there are examples across the tableland where plantings are occur- occurring that actually build corridors like ours between our place and the nearby Herberton Range, which is the wet tropics, uh, which is part of the world heritage. These corridors are crucially important because they are the ones that allow the plants and animals to move between the remaining remnants. And and so the focus of what money there is, is on connecting those. And that's pretty much where it needs to be. But what we do need is so much more investment and, and and that will uh, come hopefully with the carbon and biodiversity markets which are now building. I, you, you're also, I know you've been very frustrated that we've talked a lot about climate change and it seems like, you know, finally at least we're, we're heading in the right direction, but that biodiversity hasn't been given the kind of prominence that uh, global warming has. Well, the thing is, when you look at the world from a forest perspective, from, the, from a forest point of view, you see that the world can cope with climate change if it's intact, if it's unfragmented, uh, and it's done it forever. It, really, it's done it forever. Aboriginal people also learned how to manage it through climate change. They, they have this forever mentality of working with nature or being part of nature. They didn't split it like that. That would have been such a nonsense to them. Uh, 
Um, but now, of course, we have climate change because of the emissions, but we're also losing biodiversity. If you lose all the biodiversity, there's no point in worrying about climate change. So in many respects, it's the biodiversity crisis that we should be worried about much more than the climate crisis. You can manage the climate crisis. You cannot bring life back. Have you seen some of the uh, the animals increase in numbers, though, on, on Thiaki since you've had you know, got this rainforest up and up and running, at least, reaching for the sky? The animals that are increasing are unusual. Like, we didn't have magpies for a long time, and now we've got magpies flying in. We've got some honey eaters from further down, from lower altitude coming up to our forests. We've got tree kangaroos moving through the plantations and possums moving through, which is great. But what is happening is that because it is becoming warmer, those animals that are used to cool climates have nowhere to go. I mean, they can go up, but you can only go up to, what, 1,500 metres, and then there's nowhere to go. So what we're seeing is an increase in animals, but often animals from lower down are moving up into the patches because it's getting hotter. And so they're moving, you know, following where the sort of climate that they evolved with. Just before I let you go, Penny, to end on a lighter note, I want you to tell me about the day that you were convinced that uh, you were being sworn at in the forest. <laughs> Am I allowed to swear? We'll just say, maybe we'll just say air. <laughs> I, I have to. <laughs> well, I, I, you'll get the idea. I mean, this is really... It's an. I mean, I wrote about it, but it is an embarrassment. I look at it and go, oh, I, I am an art about writing this section because it's really naive and stupid. But, I mean, when you – I was as naive about the rainforest as Australia as anybody when we first bought the place. And we built a, a little a little cottage where you could stay while we were – while we were building the main homestead and 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 doing a carbon things, and I used to go for walks because you know you've got this fabulous place. Let's go for a walk. So I'm walking on this remote ridge, which I always do, um, almost daily. And suddenly there was this call, and this was early days, and it was fuck you, fuck you. And I went, what? My God! And it was loud and really bouncing around the forest. And it sounded like F you. And I thought someone was yelling at me. So I stood there and going, oh, my God. And I was on a ridge, very steep on either side. And I thought, well, I'm fit and I'm fast and I'll just swing around the trees as I head down the slope if there's going to be some sort of mad local or rapist. And the call came again, fuck you, fuck you. And I and I went, oh no, and it was bird. <laughs> and that was that was that was the thing. It was uh, a pigeon that uh, a wampu pigeon that has this fuck you call. But this particular bird really had the F more loud than the U. And so <laughs> I I just it was just this insane thing and the realization of that afterwards. I just walked along shaking my head. <laughs> Had your heart started beating fast, thinking I'm actually genuinely, you know, it, in danger here? Yeah. Look, it was, um, like I say, it's sort of an embarrassment now because I hear the bird all the time. Um, and, uh, but, you know, there I was. I mean, I was. it was early days. I was alone. It's a beautiful forest, a sunny day, and then suddenly this call, and it was, oh, my God. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, I'm um, presumably the place continues to surprise in in some ways still now. Penny, thank you so much for joining us on Nightlife to tell us a little bit about Theaki, the work you're doing there, and your book Cloudland. Oh, it was a great pleasure, Suzanne. Thanks very much. Thank you. Uh, that is Penny Van Ostersee, and her book is called Cloudland. You've been listening to a Nightlife podcast. For more great conversations about the issues that impact you, as well as features on travel and food, head to the Nightlife webpage. You'll find it at abc.net.au slash nightlife. You don't need to be a night owl to enjoy the nightlife.